This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith. Let's jump right into the BC election campaign now. Just eight days to go until the election. The Liberal campaign beset by problems here now. Yesterday, Liberal MLA Lori Thronas, running for re-election in Chilliwack, resigns after his comments on birth control. Just the latest in a series of troubles for the Liberals. Can they recover? I'm joined by Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson. Thanks for coming on. How are you? I'm good. Thank you for doing this. Let's start with the Lori Thronas situation. And this blew up at an all-candidates debate in Chilliwack when Lori Thronas was asked about the NDP's promise to give free birth control to British Columbians. And here is what your now former candidate said. It contains a whiff of the old eugenics thing where, uh, you know, poor people shouldn't have babies. And so we can't force them to have contraception. So we'll give it to them for free. All right. Why did it take you so long to take any action against against this MLA? He's been making controversial comments for years that have been way offside with liberal policy for years. Why did you why did you tolerate it for so long? Well, I learned about this at the end of the radio debate on CKNW yesterday and was driving out to Coquitlam and phoned up Laurie Thronas. And we had a 30 second call and that call was made to end his candidacy. And he resigned. So I think that was the necessary result because his remarks on Wednesday night were totally inappropriate. Enough is enough. And it was time to say you're no longer a candidate for the BC Liberal Party. Okay, okay so what happened. if he had not resigned, you would have fired him then? That call was made to end his candidacy. It took right. 30 seconds. Right. Okay. But he's been going against liberal policy for many years, opposing same-sex marriage, abortion, sex education in schools, now this extremist stand on birth control. All of it countered liberal policy, and you didn't do anything for, for years. Why not? Well, that's not entirely true. We had a lot of conversations with Laurie about how we have to be a party that has core values that he has to subscribe to, and every single time he would say, yes, that's fine. He agrees there can be no discrimination against people for any uh, ground, especially being uh, LGBTQ+. And all of that was an ongoing effort to make sure that he was prepared to play on a team. And it became clear on Wednesday night that he was not prepared to play on a team. I learned about it at lunchtime yesterday, phoned him up, and ended his candidacy in 30 seconds. Right, but you had to wait until almost the last week of the election campaign to do that. I mean, at one point, he even personally defied you when you ordered a stop to liberal advertising in a religious magazine that promoted anti-gay views. He said he would keep advertising in the magazine because it reflects his religious values. He didn't do anything. Well, he actually did. You know, that was another time where we drew the line in the sand and said, no more advertising that uh, outlet. Everybody agrees. And, you know, this happens in all political parties. We've seen the NDP advertising in ones that are vehemently opposed to uh, LGBTQ issues, and that doesn't seem to come to light. So every party has to manage these things. You stick to our party position on being equal, fair, and based on opportunity, or you're not a right. candidate. And yesterday I reached the 
at a turning point, and I just said it's over. Well, I think the questions really are around the management of something like this because it's been going on for so long. And despite all this, these controversies going on for years, I mean, you even named him your critic for children and families. I mean, this stuff's been going on back when Christy Clark was the leader and when he was advancing his personal religious views, counter to liberal policy, and you named him your children's critic. Well, we have to be a big tent party that accepts people from a wide range of views, but there are some core principles. You treat everybody equally. You focus on opportunity. There's fairness for everybody in British Columbia. There is no discrimination in my world or our party's world on the basis of age, sex, gender, sexual orientation, place of origin, income, period. We're all equal, and candidates have to agree to that. If they don't, they're not candidates. Yeah, but... Laurie Thorne has crossed the line. But you left him as your children and families critic for years there. At one point, he even he criticized government-sponsored child care. He said children should be at home with their parents, again injecting his own religious views. And you kept him as your children's critic. Why did you do that? Well, it wasn't injecting his religious views. It was saying there has to be a range of child care. And one thing we've done, Mike, is say we've got to expand that range of child care. And we have said that the NDP's talk about $10 a day care proved to be nothing more than a myth. There's a little tiny federal pilot program. We're saying any family with an income of 65000 or less needs to have $10 a day care, up to $90,000, right. $20 a day care, because we've got to get people back into the workforce, and they can't if they can't afford daycare. Okay. We got 11% unemployment in the lower mainland. We got 150,000 people unemployed in hospitality and tourism. We got to look out for these people and get British Columbia going again. Let me read you some tweets that were posted yesterday by Nicole Paul. She is the membership chair of the Liberal Party and she posted yesterday as the membership chair I've been fighting internally for the last 5 months at the board table saying the views of Lori Thronas do not belong in our party all of which have been ignored. Our, the BC Liberal Party does not have a Lori Thronas problem. What we have is a leadership problem in the party and their lack of willingness to stand up for diversity, inclusion, and the values of Liberal members. How do you respond to your own membership chair? Well, she's uh, changed her tune a bit this morning at 7.14, repeating that her tweets yesterday are not me pulling out the knives on the BCLP leader or quitting the party. So... Parties have to uh, accept a range of views. There's always dissent in every political party, and she's entitled to her views, but she seems to be moderating them this morning. Well, I don't know about that. Her her tweets are still up there, and I corresponded yesterday with her on Twitter. She said she's getting a lot of support. Do you feel that you failed as the leader of the party on these matters? Well, no. Yesterday, I got overwhelming support coming in. Numerous, numerous messages from people and candidates all over British Columbia saying, you did the right thing. Enough is enough with Laurie Thronis, and that was a leadership moment. And as I say, I phoned Laurie Thronis to end his candidacy, and that happened within 30 right. seconds. What are, what are liberal supporters in Chilliwack supposed to do now? I, as I understand it, his name is still on the ballot. He will still be identified as a liberal on the ballot. Uh, what are people, who are people supposed to vote for in Chilliwack now? What are you encouraging, who are you encouraging liberals to vote for now? Well, you're right, Mike. Elections BC controls what's on the ballot, and the ballot will say he is the candidate in Chilliwack-Kent for the BC Liberal Party, and people have to make up their own decision. We no longer have a candidate in that riding, and we'll let people make up their own minds. What, what if he wins? Would you welcome him back into the Liberal caucus at any point? Oh, he'll be sitting as an independent. I mean, enough is enough. Thank you for coming on. Thanks, Mike, and let's focus on getting BC into a better state. we got to 
get our economy going again, and that's what I'm really concerned about, is the 11% unemployment that people are really running out of money in British Columbia. We've got to get this place going again. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about the situation with the two Michaels detained in China. Now, of course, Michael Kovrig, Michael Spavor, uh, detained in December 2018. That followed Canada's arrest of Meng Wanzhou, the Chinese Huawei official, a daughter of the company's founder. I think clear to a lot of people that the detention of the two Michaels in China, uh, retaliation for Canada's arrest of Meng Wanzhou. Uh, interesting that China finally granted a virtual consular access to those two Canadian detained Canadians for, uh, over the weekend for the first time they had access to Canadian consular officials since January. Unbelievable. Have a listen to this here now. Canada has been criticized for being too soft on China and relations, but I'll tell you what, Bob Ray, uh, the ambassador, Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, pretty tough here and speaking to the UN Assembly here. Have a listen. He is the one who's raised the particular case of uh, Madame Meng, who is uh, under house arrest uh, and limited in her movements because of an extradition treaty that Canada has with the United States pursuant to the rule of law in Canada. In response to this, the Chinese government arbitrarily arrested and detained two Canadian citizens, Michael Spavor and Michael Kovrig, and they have been living in terrible conditions without consular access, uh, without any humane treatment whatsoever uh, in a Chinese prison. And I can say to my friend from China, when you, when you say to a country of 35 million people, that we are somehow bullying a nation of over a billion, one of the great superpowers of the world, and they have chosen to treat these two Canadian citizens in this way, this is, an, this is something which we shall never forget. And we shall continue to raise their case, and we shall continue to raise other cases of people who have been harshly treated and arbitrarily detained. And if you think that insulting us or insulting my country or insulting anyone is going to help in resolving this situation, you are sadly mistaken. All right. Bob Ray, Canada's ambassador to the United Nations. I wanted to play that at length there because I was just really struck by the, by the tone there. Uh, very tough there uh, positioning for Canada at the United Nations here on this issue. Now, the two Michaels have received a consular visit, at least virtually online, maybe as a result of Ray's uh, pushing there that you just heard. Let's talk about this now with my guest, Joanna Chu, Vancouver Police Journalist for the Toronto Star. I'm very pleased to welcome her back to the show. Hi, Joanna. Hi, Mike. Thanks a lot for coming on. Um, let's first of all talk about, about the two Michaels. Like, I think it's extraordinary that they have now finally received a consular visit, at least a virtual one. And I was just reading a report in the Guardian newspaper that, according to... Um, they were stunned to hear about the extent of the coronavirus outbreak. Uh, yeah. This is what they've been, they've been basically been shielded from any yeah. kind of news. What your thoughts? Yeah. Well, they obviously don't have any access to the news. And right. the last time they spoke with, they, they could have gotten any information was January. That was way before. Um, that was when the pandemic was just starting in China. So, and they weren't able to get consular access for so long because Chinese authorities used the excuse of the pandemic, but now that you could have a virtual 
visit that kind of removes that excuse. It, it sounded like an excuse from the beginning because there could have been even a phone call much earlier than now. Just amazing. I, I, I really feel for what they're going through in their families. And Michael Kovrig's wife was uh, the one who disclosed that that Michael Kovrig was stunned to hear about the, the extent of the COVID-19 outbreak. So that just shows you how much I, the isolation that that they're in. You're, you've written about your friendship with Michael Kovrig. You knew him back when you were covering it. You were in Hong, you were in Hong Kong, right? Um, I was in Hong Kong and Beijing, and he yeah. also worked in both Hong Kong and Beijing, but I met him in Beijing when he was a, a diplomat there. Right. Do you have any idea what what he's going through? Or like, do we, do we get any kind of solid, reliable information of what kind of conditions they're under there? No, but because he, he was able to speak with um, uh, the consul, consular visit, um, his family did release a statement saying that he seemed to be in good spirits, that somehow this isolation hasn't broken him. And wow. he's doing exercises, he's reading and trying to maintain as positive attitude as possible. And to me, I guess, knowing what he was like and how steady he was, that doesn't sound that surprising, but it is surprising because, you know, a lot of us uh, living through the pandemic, staying home for two weeks in isolation can make you feel just really depressed and anxious. I can't imagine <laughs> what they could be going through. Yeah, no kidding. Speaking to Joanna Chu from the Toronto Star, she's based in Vancouver. She was a friend of Michael Kovrig, one of the, the two Michaels detained in China. What did you think of that Bob Ray speech to the United Nations? That just seemed like, a, is this a new tone, kind of a tougher tone that you think that Canada well, is adopting? I think he's a recently appointed new Canadian U.S. envoy, and you know, perhaps you can read into his appointment because it's not exactly... Um, a surprise that he would have a tough tone because he's been a career politician who has had this kind of tough tone for a long time. So maybe it was a strategic decision to be to appoint someone tougher at the UN. And he was saying that the UN is basically failing in its role as kind of like an international um, alliance of countries. Um, so it's forcing Canada and other democratic countries to build their own alliances, um, especially when it comes to pushing against China's increasing aggression. Um, and What's uh, ironic is just um, this is all happening around the 50-year anniversary of uh, Trudeau's father, Pierre Trudeau, establishing uh, diplomatic relations with modern China 50 years ago in 1970. Wow. So um, on on this anniversary, the Chinese ambassador took the opportunity to threaten not only a few people, but there are uh, 300,000 Canadians living in Hong Kong. He uh, um, He was very angry that Canada received some... Hong Kong refugees. So yes. he said um, Canada should stop it if you care about the health and safety of Canadians living in Hong Kong. And wow. then he went around and wouldn't answer um, if that was a threat. <laughs> but I think it pretty much sounds like um, Trudeau called it a very disturbing, concerning statement. Yeah, I think that's maybe an understatement. Yeah, Canada, mm -hmm. the Chinese ambassador to Canada warning the, the Trudeau government yesterday not to grant asylum to Hong Kong residents uh, fleeing the, uh, the national security law there imposed by the, mm -hmm. the Beijing government. That, that is fascinating. What is happening on the ground in Hong Kong right now? Um, more and more people are getting arrested. Um, yeah. Companies are basically self-censoring. Um, uh, journalists are being, some journalists have been detained. A whole newspaper has been ransacked by police um, and its wow. publisher arrested. Uh, a pro-democracy 
uh, Chinese language, Hong Kong newspaper, Apple Daily, that's been very popular for a long time. So people are trying to protest by really small things now because they're so scared by reading that newspaper on uh, at subway stations and still they're getting just monitored or in some cases detained for that kind of type of protest in Hong Kong, reading a newspaper in a public space. Wow. Yeah. Okay, Joanna, we continue to follow it closely. Thanks for your insight today, and I hope one day that we uh, the, the two Michaels are released yeah. and you're able to see your friend again. Thanks for coming on. Uh, I would also like to say that it's not only true Canadians in China right now for political cases. Um, as late as long ago as 2006, there's still a Canadian there who's seen Salil, a Canadian citizen who's been detained there for no apparent reason. So wow. there's several cases, and I think um, partly it's these people aren't um, there are people of color, so they may have had less attention right from the beginning. But uh, I wrote a piece in, back in 2018, uh, The Forgotten Canadians Detained in China. So I think it's worth thinking about them, too, because they're still there. For sure. <laughs> Thanks, Joanna. Okay, thank you. All right, welcome back to the show. We've talked a lot on the program in the last couple of weeks about calls for mandatory face mask policies. Really interesting study on that in the last few days, suggesting that if more jurisdictions brought in mandatory face masks in indoor public places, you could slow down the spread of COVID-19. Some jurisdictions have gone that route, others not. Here in British Columbia... Uh, we got mandatory face masks on the transit system. Some private businesses have got face mask rules, but largely no uh, widespread face mask rules or requirements in, in our province. Dr. Bonnie Henry has, seems to have resisted that as well. Okay, let's talk a little bit about that now. Should there be a mandatory face mask policy at city-owned buildings, municipal buildings? in the city of Vancouver. My next guest, Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young, uh, thinks there should be. Uh, some medical health officers in the city, though, uh, saying not so fast. I'll tell you about that, too. I'm very pleased to welcome Sarah, Sarah Kirby-Young. Councillor, thank you for coming on. Good morning, Mike. Thanks a lot for doing this. Okay, tell me about your motion here on this issue. So, it, it, as you said, it's, uh, it's uh, really asking Council to endorse a mandatory mask policy for the duration of COVID-19. Um, as a precautionary measure, and uh, I think to know that we're doing all that we can do to keep people safe um, and to keep people feeling comfortable and, and people having comfort and being able to get back into civic facilities and visit them is, is really important as well. And we oh. saw that would translate with, uh, I think, their ridership challenges. And uh, I think when they did put their uh, their mask policy in place, we saw ridership start to go up and we saw really good compliance there. Wow. Yeah, no, people will generally follow the rules with some exceptions, but where would this, if you brought in a mandatory mask policy for municipal buildings in Vancouver. So can you give me some examples of what facilities and buildings that would uh, include? Yeah, so there's a range, everything from sort of buildings where people are doing business, like uh, Vancouver City Hall, to facilities like libraries and community centres. We'd have to work with our partners because we have, you know, the Vancouver Public Library Board and the Vancouver Park Board, but uh, a lot of those places are all the spaces that we shut down immediately after COVID, um, like civic um, theatres, community centers, senior centers, recreational facilities, libraries um, that are now all starting to reopen. Okay, you have a motion to this regard. What is the status of your motion there on this? So it's going to be on the council agenda on Tuesday. Um, okay. uh, 
So uh, it'll be up for debate. I expect it'll be probably a hot and an interesting debate um, because we did receive a letter from Patricia Daly, um, who does not support a mandatory mask policy. But I think uh, the science is evolving and we're seeing a lot of studies that are coming out, as you said, that are showing an increasing correlation between um, a decrease in COVID cases or the viral load and the severity of cases. Um, of COVID um, for areas that have adopted masks. I think we have it on TransLink now. Um, I think that we have there in a number of stores. I think people are used to wearing them. And um, until some of these studies are peer-reviewed and the science catches up, I want to know that we've taken every possible precaution that we can to keep people healthy. Okay, speaking to Vancouver City Councillor Sarah Kirby-Young, she has a motion at City Council to make face masks mandatory inside municipal buildings in the city. You mentioned uh, Dr. Daly, so that is Dr. Patricia J- uh, Daly, the Chief Medical Health Officer for Vancouver, and she has released a letter uh, opposing this idea. Um, she says, quote, uh, a mandatory mask policy uh, could create barriers and risks for vulnerable people, such as a lack of access to essential services and further stigmatization and marginalization if they can't afford to buy a face mask. What are your thoughts on that? So I think there's easy ways to overcome that. Um, Delta, when they put their mask policy in place, they make masks available to everybody who needs them if they don't have one at facilities. I think that we can do the same. Um, in you know areas where we have community center locations or services in the downtown east side, for example, um, we've got federal restart funding coming. We have people and, and organizations that have contacted and offered mass donations. So if it's an affordability issue, we can certainly provide those. Um, and there are yeah. exemptions in the policy for people that may have disabilities or have a medical issue and are not able to wear a mask for that reason. But um, I don't see that as a barrier at all. And I would also note that Dr. Bonnie Henry has said often that um, when you're inside and you can't, you're for an extended period of time or you can't physically distance or guarantee that, that wearing masks are a good precautionary sure. measure. Sure. I think a lot of people are, are have picked up on that for sure. I, I know that I wear a, a mask when I'm out in a, a grocery store, that kind of thing. I know you do too. So I think it's an interesting issue. And it's, I don't know, in some ways, I guess it's kind of, kind of surprising to, to see the city's chief medical health officer uh, coming out against that idea. But you mentioned that there are exemptions, right? And we see that on the transit system too. So if you have a disability, you've got a medical condition, which some people do, that prevents you from wearing a face mask, you can get an exemption. And on the transit system, you can get a special card that would indicate that you're exempted from wearing the face mask. Would would you would you advocate for a similar system for city-owned buildings? Yeah, and that's exactly yeah. what I'm proposing, and it would be right. very similar to TransLink, and that, the addition to that would be children under five, right? But I think to your okay. point, um, everybody's wearing masks now because it is part, I think, of a good social contract of taking care of each other because the science says that aerosols play a role, and even uh, our you know, federal health officer, Dr. Tam, said that um, the science on aerosols is evolving. I think she said that on October 13th, um, and there is a need to revisit the federal guidance in this area, so I think that you know, sort of the, the medical certainty um, isn't there yet. And, you know, coastal health needs to work on sort of 100% facts, but we see right. that science evolving. And I think that we need to be ahead of it. I've also been contacted by a number of medical professionals, doctors and ER professionals who have stated their support for this as well. Okay, you mentioned that your idea for this would apply to um, community centers, rec centers. So what about someone working out in a gym, like let's say at a municipal rec center, like, would you have to wear a mask if you're like on the stairmaster or something? 
You can make exceptions for, you know, when you're doing really strenuous exercise. Um, so I'm thinking more in terms of, you know, the mainstream areas. Like, for example, you have senior centers, you have seniors programs, social right. gatherings and groups, things like that. But um, there can be exceptions for that. And there's some really strict and strong cleaning protocols around um, gym facilities. I know at the gym that I go to near my house, they wipe everything down. Um, you get you walk in, you get your own spray bottle and your own paper towel and you wipe it as you use it. Um, but that's that's in a heavy-duty area where people need to breathe, obviously. But there's a lot of other activities that happen in our rec centers in multi-purpose rooms or just, you know, community right. gatherings, yoga, all sorts of things that are not as, as strenuous an activity as, you know, being on the Stairmaster. Okay, we're following this closely for sure. I look forward to see what happens with your motion at City Council next week on this. Thank you for coming on. Thanks. I really hope that uh, Council supports this because I'm hearing a lot of support from the community and I just don't want to be on the wrong side of history on this one. I want to do everything we can. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive help supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious lolly Focus Pops or lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Well, well, all right. Welcome back to the show. What a wild week it's been in the BC election campaign. Uh, Voting day is one week from tomorrow. So here we go. Just eight days to go in this campaign. But wow, what a rough week it was for the BC Liberals. Really capped off by the Lori Thronas situation here. Uh, The former, now former BC Liberal candidate in Chilliwack. It all started with those comments he made about birth control on an all-candidates meeting. Here's what he said. It contains a whiff of the old eugenics thing where, uh, you know, poor people shouldn't have babies. And so we can't force them to have contraception. So we'll give it to them for free. Okay, they're commenting on the NDP promise to provide free birth control. That was too much for Liberal leader Andrew Wilkinson. He appeared on the show here this morning. He told me he effectively ended Throness's candidacy for the Liberal Party yesterday. I asked him, though, what are Liberal supporters in Chilliwack supposed to do? He's still going to be on the ballot. He'll still be identified as a Liberal on the election ballot. And here's what Wilkinson told me. Elections BC controls what's on the ballot, and the ballot will say he is the candidate in Chilliwack, Kent, for the BC Liberal Party, and people have to make up their own decision. We no longer have a candidate in that riding, and we'll let people make up their own minds. What, what if he wins? Would you welcome him back into the Liberal caucus at any point? Oh, he'll be sitting as an independent. I mean, enough is enough. Okay, that was uh, just one event in a busy week here on the election trail. All right, our candidates panel is assembled. So let's kick it off right now. My guest, Peter Millibar, he's the Liberal candidate seeking re-election in Kamloops, North Thompson. Hey, Peter. Okay, I know he's there. Katrina Chen, also on the line. She's the NDP candidate in Burnaby Lowheed. Hi, Katrina. Hi, thank you for having me, Mike. Thanks for doing this. Also, Adam Olson on the line, Green Party candidate, Saanich North in the Islands. Adam, welcome back to the show. 
Thank you for having me. Okay, thank you to all three of you. Let me go to Peter Millobar first for the Liberals. Peter, what a rough week for the Liberal Party here. Do you think this in, in any way under undermines uh, Andrew Wilkinson's leadership of the party? Well, I think it certainly makes it a, a rough go for uh, the 86 other ridings that aren't Chilliwack Kent. Uh, I think we'd be kidding ourselves if we thought otherwise. But, um, you know, hopefully, uh, I think what people saw yesterday, uh, for as much as people are saying it's the same old BC Liberal, I, I think what you saw was a visceral response by a great many in caucus and a great many candidates out there. Uh, that they, they are, we are different uh, than what uh, we're trying to be painted as. And that's what you saw as a reaction. Um, you know, and I really do hope in this last week people can focus in um, on our platform because there is a lot of change in that platform. Uh, we've uh, you know, got some great things going on, on the childcare front, on seniors care, on the economy, and on trying to uh, provide supports for business. And so I, I hope we can get back to focusing in on the issues because it's a critically important election for the next four years uh, coming out of a COVID pandemic uh, for the public. And we need to get uh, away from these self-inflicted uh, distractions to make sure that the mm. public are making informed uh, decisions. Okay, Katrina Chen for the NDP. What did you make of the whole thing this week? Well, why am, well, I'm a little encouraged by the move, but I don't think BC Liberal just have a lower sonus problem. They really have issues with sexism, homophobia, transphobia in their team. And Wilkinson has really completely failed as a leader, continues to tolerate hate in his own team of candidates, uh, including he has not said anything about um, the Len East candidate who has, uh, is ideologi- audio, sorry, ideologically opposed to Rendell uh, Rimble crosswalks, uh, voted against one at the start of the campaign. And how about Lauren Brett, who praised the widely condemned anti-trans block of J.K. Rowling? Like, he has not taken any actions on those. So I think we need to make sure that they take some more actions. We need a government that uh, can be leaders to build an inclusive community, not a divisive one. This is not acceptable. Okay, Peter, I'll give you a chance to respond there. How do you defend the liberals here on this stuff? Well, again, uh, you know, I think uh, there, there's been NDP candidates that have uh, exhibited uh, anti-Israeli sentiments and, and uh, other sentiments that are, are uh, frankly offside as well. Uh, we haven't focused on those, and, and that's why I'm saying I think it's time that we focus in as a population uh, to make sure that uh, the electorate is actually basing votes based on platform, on, on what's going to happen as policy and direction of the overall uh, governmental structure of our province moving forward. Uh, Laurie Thronis is not a part of our caucus. He's not a part of our party. Uh, and we need people, and, and uh, we as a party need to make sure that we're advancing uh, our initiatives and our ideas moving forward okay. um, so that people have a clear choice. Okay, Adam Olson for the Greens, your thoughts. Yeah, look, I mean, I, I think the BC Liberals have been uh, suffering this kind of, uh, and, and, and allowing it to, to exist within their caucus uh, for, for their own po- political reasons, and and unfortunately, uh, what we saw yesterday was not a firing. It was a uh, it was Andrew Wilkinson accepting a resignation. It, it should have actually have been a firing. Uh, it should have shown the leadership to to remove Laurie Thronis and this kind of sentiment from their caucus. If, if it was actually genuine, it would have happened a long time ago. This is not the first time that Laurie has said these things. It's not the first time that that uh, that uh, other uh, liberal MLAs and so you know while everybody in the caucus you know resoundingly came out against what Laurie Thronis said um, the other night they've been sitting next to him and allowing it to continue for months I've, I've been sitting across the way listening to this kind of uh, th- this kind of garbage coming out of out of him so I think that um, I think to, to say now that the the liberal caucus we need to focus on the issues uh, this is an issue 
This is a substantial mm-hmm. issue, and it's not one that should just be, oh, now let's deflect and look at our platform. No, 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 no. This is a problem within the political organization of the BC Liberals, and uh, they've been sitting by when, and letting it happen and, and uh, accepting it. Okay, Adam, when you say that maybe they've been accepting it or tolerating it for political reasons, what do you mean? Well, it's just been, I mean, it, they, they always talk about being a free enterprise coalition, and they've been trying to navigate this or, or at least uh, rationalizing this this really deep divide, I think, between their party and in what would be a federal liberal and a federal conservative divide within their party. And they've been trying to just, and they just let it kind of sit there and, and, and fester in their political party. And, that's, and this, this is what okay. you get a week out from an election. Peter Millibar, what do you say to that? Well, again, I think we have uh, very strong candidates across this province. Um, you know, we're, we're having a lot of conversation about one member that is no longer a part of our, our caucus. He's not a part of our party. He will not okay. sit as, uh, as a member after the election. You look at a Matt Karen, you look at a uh, Alexa Liu, you look at a, um, a, a wide range of, of strong, young, uh, vibrant candidates we have uh, brought forward as a party. Uh, we have changed as a party. You look at our platform, you look at the reaction uh, that you saw very openly yesterday about people saying that they are not willing to accept that as part of the BC Liberal um, Party. Um, we, right. have, uh, we, are, we have changed as a party, and, and uh, that's why I'm saying I'm not trying to deflect. Uh, it was reprehensible, it was repugnant. Uh, pick a word, it was that yesterday and more. Um, and that's why you saw the reaction from a great many of our candidates that you did. All right, welcome back to the show. As we continue with our BC Elections Candidates panel, now my guest, Katrina Chan for the NDP, Peter Millibar for the Liberals, Adam Olson for the Greens, all seeking election. Election day just eight days away. Katrina, let's talk about some of those campaign issues out there. Let's talk about child care. Peter Millibar brought that up earlier. All the parties have got major child care platforms. Tell me about the, the NDP promise on this. It's so important to so many voters. Totally. I remember when I started the work in 2017 uh, as a mom who struggled with childcare. I always asked myself, how come this was never a top priority for the previous BC Liberal government for so long when parents are struggling? So during the past three and a half years, in a very short period of time, we've put together 30 over three dozens of new strategies, making childcare more affordable, uh, allowing tens and thousands of families to have a fee reduction. About 33,000 families are paying $10 a day or less. And we've really accelerated the creation of spaces of over 20,000 spaces funded just during the past two and three years. That's the fastest in BC's history. And we also need to support early childhood educators because without them, they are the workforce behind the workforce. We aren't able to build a universal, inclusive, affordable childcare for all. And we're going to continue with that commitment when the BC liberals really ignore that for 20 years, voted against our plan every step of the way. We cannot believe them. Okay, let's go to Liberal candidate Peter Millibar now. They've also got a major child care commitment in this election. Peter? Well, we do, and, and I could certainly spend uh, this whole time talking about their failed promise that they've just rehashed for this election, but our, our commitment is about an income-tested uh, child care uh, program that will see access if you make uh, under $65,000 in your household, it's $10 a day, $90,000 income is uh, $20 a day, and $125,000 income is $30 a day. So it's actually uh, a way we can actually get it implemented, make it affordable for people based on their income levels, uh, add those 10,000 spaces that we're committed to building uh, that the NDP have fallen uh, woefully behind on, and make sure that people actually have that access to child care. But you also need to actually have an economy 
uh, clipping along that people have a job to go back to uh, so that as their child is getting that proper, safe uh, childcare, uh, they're gainfully employed. And, and we have, uh, you know, those uh, initiatives in our platform as well. Where does where does the money come from this for this? I mean, this has been the most extraordinary election I think I've ever seen in, in terms of the, the generous spending promises that comes day after day after day, billions and billions and billions of dollars worth of uh, promises and spending commitments from every single party. Are we just like, you know, where does it all come from? We just borrow it all, right? We just rack up the deficit? Peter? Well, I, I think we have to be careful. Uh, back uh, back in the day when the BC Liberals first came in, there was a lot of structural deficit uh, to our to our government uh, structure uh, built up by the NDP. And so that's why things like the PSD is a one-year cut. It's not a, a perpetual cut in terms of that zero uh, percent. Uh, but as the economy gets back on its feet, as as those types of sales taxes and that start to generate uh, income again, uh, that's where you'll see the revenues come back into play. The NDP response is just keep raising everybody's taxes uh, to no end. You cannot build a stronger, rebuilt economy uh, based on ever-increasing uh, tax burden on people. Uh, Adam Olson for the Greens. Yeah, thank you. I mean, I think on on one hand, in Peter's answer, you're you're putting a seven billion dollar hole in in the in it, and then complaining about the the taxes being raised. I think that you have to recognize that the money does have to come from somewhere. That's part of the reason why we proposed putting childcare into the Ministry of Education, which uh, uh, Minister of State Chen and the and the BC NDP government were very reluctant to do, and still haven't done. We've been saying that it should be part of our education plan, so that it's part of education funding and a continuum of learning, from early childhood, uh, under three to daycare, childcare, under three early childhood, as well as the the preschool. Uh, aged early childhood education. You put it in the Ministry of Education and then it becomes a continuum of lifelong learning and you're spending the money that's there, you're investing it in our children and grandchildren, founded on the principle that a modern society is built on a cornerstone of quality public education starting right from the youngest age all the way through to retraining and skills training for people in career transition. Okay, okay, Katrina Chen, uh, Peter Millibar took a few shots at the NDP record on child care, it does seem to be a bit of deja vu with the, the promise of $10 a day child care. Um, have you guys delivered on that? Or when will you actually deliver on the promises for $10 a day child care? Totally. We have delivered on it. Our commitment is to build a universal, inclusive, quality, affordable child care system for all families in BC. And we have been building that foundation. It is a long-term plan. It is a new social program that's going to benefit generations to come. We have lowered parent fees significantly. We have been creating, accelerating the creation of spaces. And we have been supporting early childhood educators, which is key to build this uh, foundation. And we are moving it to education. And we've been working uh, very uh, dedically with the sector and making sure that parents can get the relief as soon as possible. If you look at all, right. all the three-party plan, our plan is the only comprehensive plan that is building a system. The other two are very patchwork and not really building a social program at all. Okay, we've only got a few minutes left here, guys. Uh, Peter, let me go back to you. This has been a rough week for the Liberals, as we mentioned. How do you guys turn this around? Uh, there's been a lot of self-inflicted damage done, as, as you acknowledge. How do the Liberals turn this around with just eight days left? Well, absolutely. It's been self-inflicted, and there's no getting around that. But uh, I, I really do and, and sincerely hope that the public, uh, there's 86 other writings out there, uh, 
that we have very strong, uh, dedicated, uh, thoughtful people running in um, with a very strong platform uh, to bring move, uh, British Columbia forward. And, and that's really the key to all of this. Uh, you know, in spite of how much we like to talk about the, the NDP in the 90s and they like to harp on about 16 years, the reality is people in the here and the now want to know what uh, tomorrow is going to hold for them, what the next three, four years is going to hold. And so I would encourage them to look at the BC Liberal platform um, and really uh, uh, recognize that we have a lot of policy and a lot of change in there uh, that does uh, reflect our, our new talented crew of candidates out there across this province. Uh, Adam Olson for the Green Party, your leader, Sonia Firstenau, I think has had a good week. She put in two yep. strong performances in the debates we saw this this week. Uh, can you talk to me a little bit about that momentum here in the two minutes that we've got left? And is it possible to for the Green Party to break through anywhere? Well, I think Peter just made the pitch for the BC Green Party as best as, as anybody could. People have complained about the the challenges that the NDP have had governing in the 1990s and, and some of the challenges that they had in, you know, over the last three and a half years. People complaining about the BC Liberals. And, you know, these two establishment parties have tried to make this a, 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 a two-party conversation. The reality is, is the B.C. Greens have put forward uh, a leader that can speak with compassion and directly to the, the hearts and minds of British Columbians. We saw that in the debates. Um, she is the exact same person on the TV screen as I've seen show up to the table every single day working very collaboratively to deliver universal child care with uh, uh, Minister Chen. And, uh, and I think that there's an opportunity in this election now for British Columbians to embrace the future and go forward and vote BC Green. Okay, Katrina Chen, I'll give you the last word. We've just got a minute left here. What's your message to voters? I think it's important to think about who can lead us through this pandemic. Like John Horgan has said, it's not about the next few months, it's about the next few years. The BC Liberals have failed at British Columbians for the past 20 years. We cannot believe in them when they cut 10,000 healthcare workers, ignore childcare, fail to invest in education, which is totally terrible for our economy. We need a strong party to lead us forward. And John Hogan and the BC NDP have the track record. We've accomplished over 80% of our platform commitment. And we're going to continue to invest in people because it's good for our people, for our community, for our economy. Okay, guys, thank you for an excellent panel once again. I want to thank all three of the panelists for being here today. Katrina Chen for the NDP, Peter Millibar for the Liberals, Adam Olson for the Green Party. My thanks to all three of them. All right, welcome back to the show. We've talked a lot about the B.C. provincial election on the show today. Of course, there's another election going on south of the border. Of course, it's the race for the White House. Donald Trump versus Joe Biden just days away to this dramatic confrontation here. Trump behind in the polls here. But I don't know. I start to get a little deja vu on this stuff sometimes because four years ago, they said he had no chance either against Hillary Clinton. And of course, he pulled that dramatic upset. Now, think about why Trump has been able to achieve what he has been able to achieve. What about the influence of conservative talk radio in the United States? Some of the big names in talk radio, guys like Glenn Beck, Sean Hannity, but the godfather of all, the big kahuna, when it comes to conservative talk in the United States is, of course, Rush Limbaugh. Now, have a listen to some of this audio. Now, I just give you a warning there. Some people might find Rush Limbaugh a little offensive here in some of the stuff he says here, but this is just a little sample of Rush. Here he is. 
The coronavirus being weaponized as yet another element to bring down Donald Trump. Now, I want to tell you the truth about the coronavirus. The coronavirus is, is, is the common cold. If any race of people should not have guilt about slavery, it's Caucasians. If we are going to pay for your contraceptives and thus pay for you to have sex, we want something for it. And I'll tell you what it is. We want you to post the videos online so we can all watch. Okay, Rush Limbaugh there. Yeah, he is a giant of conservative talk radio. All right, let's talk about the influence of conservative talk in the United States and in shaping the Republican Party uh, in particular and putting Donald Trump in the White House, the continuing influence of uh, conservative talk in America. My guest is Professor Brian Rosenwald. His terrific book is Talk Radio's America, How an Industry Took Over a Political Party That Took Over the United States. He earned his Ph.D. studying talk radio. He's a professor at the University of Pennsylvania. I'm very pleased to welcome him to the show. Brian, thanks a lot for coming on. Mike, it's my pleasure to be with you. Okay, I appreciate it a lot. This is a terrific book. Congratulations on it. I think it's very relevant now as we get closer and closer to another election in the United States. So when you hear Rush Limbaugh there in some of the clips that we just played, can you talk to me a little bit about the, the influence uh, of Rush Limbaugh in America and especially in politics? Because you trace it back to the, to the late 80s, right? What happened back in 1988 with uh, Rush Limbaugh? He starts this national show, and it takes off like wildfire. It is something that people have never heard before. It's in your face. It has a, a distinct perspective, but it's funny. It's zany. He's talking about what he calls Gorbasms, which he says is the way that liberals and the media react to Mikhail Gorbachev. And they have a theme song, which is Star Wars Imperial March, which, you know, is Darth Vader's music. Um, and he's doing these themed updates with, with theme music, and he uses nicknames and parodies and all kinds of other stuff. Even at one point, he spends a couple of weeks aborting callers, where he will take a liberal caller and he'll play a vacuum cleaner sound effect, and you hear screaming in the background. Um, and then he, he said, you know, my whole point was that people were more outraged about this than they were about actual abortions. And he takes off within four years. This guy who had been fired five or six times as a DJ had worked in group sales and marketing for the Kansas city Royals within like four years on the national airwaves or less. He's sleeping in the Lincoln bedroom, visiting with the president of the United States because he becomes that big of a deal. Okay, of course, it's become very influential with, with Trump and his supporters. We saw Do Donald Trump called into his show the other day, two hours there, with, with Limbaugh. What do you think, it, like, when it comes to Rush Limbaugh and, and his, his influence in the United States, does he, like, shape listener opinion in the, in the United States with his show? Or do you think he just, you know, like, there was, like, a conservative uh, groundswell in the United States that, just, that was already there that, he, that responded to him? I think it's absolutely both. He starts out his show as, you know, trying to put on the best show. He says people listen to the radio for three things. Entertainment, entertainment, entertainment. Uh, he tells an early interviewer that. But as people are calling in and saying, my God, Rush, thank God you're on the air. We finally have a voice. There's somebody, finally somebody to fight for us. He starts to feel a responsibility. Now, I don't think that he tells his, his listeners what to think in terms of their overall perspective. If you're tuning into Rush Limbaugh, in most cases, it's because you want someone who reflects those conservative values that he shares with his audience. 
But what he does do is sometimes apply those values to legislation and to other topics that the audience may not know what to think. So, for example, there was a Pew study last week that said that if you listen to Fox News um, and talk radio, this is only among Republicans who watch Fox News, listen to talk radio, they said 90% of them said that the government could not have controlled COVID-19 any better. 90 to 9. If you listen to a blend of Fox News and talk radio and other news, it was 62% said they could not have handled it better, 35% said they could have. And if you listen to no Fox and talk radio and you're a Republican, 46% said they handled it as well as they could have, and 53% said no. So what you see is the huge influence on, in shaping opinions because these guys have built friendships. Rush Limbaugh has a friendship and a relationship with listeners who've been with him for 30 years, um, and, and they, they value his opinion. Okay. Uh, speaking about the influence of conservative talk radio in America with my guest, Brian Rosenwald, author of the book, Talk Radio's America. Did conservative talk radio guys like uh, Rush Limbaugh, did they put Trump in the White House? What they did was they created a political culture um, and a politics and media world in which someone who sounded like him could be elected. What, what I mean is in 1988, when Rush goes national, Trump floats his, uh, uh, his name for vice president. And George Herbert Walker Bush, who's the Republican nominee, when, when he hears that, is kind of puzzled. You can see the eyebrows raising um, when, when you think about the two personalities. Because somebody like Trump, with his in-your-face style, with the abrasive and offensive comments that he makes, with his lack of devotion to truth and his kind of warfare mentality towards politics, just wouldn't have been a fit. But by 2016, he could say things, you know, he talks about John McCain not being a hero because he's been captured and things. And pundits are very confident, as you mentioned, you're getting deja vu. Pundits are saying, well, you know, he's done. That's it. He can't, you you can't say this and get away with it. Well, if you listen to what Rush Limbaugh and others like him were saying, they were saying, you know, the media makes these declarations, but it's not up to them. It's up to you. You are the Republican voters who will decide on the nominee. And we've never had a guy like this Trump guy who won't just go away when the media says go away. And the hosts themselves have been doing this. And for decades, their audiences wanted someone who sounded like their favorite house, someone who would actually fight. Someone who said, you know, we will shut the government down. Someone who said, we're not backing down. Someone who said, no, I'm not going to bow to you liberal values and liberal elites. I'm going to fight back. And Trump comes along and they say, my God, finally somebody in politics who sounds like our favorite host. And it's like deja vu about what they said about Rush Limbaugh in the early 90s. All right, welcome back to the show. Continuing my conversation now with my guest, Professor Brian Rosenwald from the University of Pennsylvania. His terrific book is Talk Radio's America, How an Industry Took Over a Political Party That Took Over the United States. And we talked a little bit about Rush Limbaugh, sort of the big kahuna of conservative talk uh, south of the border. Have a listen to this now. Here's uh, Donald Trump uh, presenting Limbaugh with the Presidential Medal of Freedom. In recognition of all that you have done for our nation, the millions of people a day that you speak to and that you inspire, and all of the incredible work that you have done for charity, I am proud to announce tonight that you will be receiving our country's highest civilian honor, the Presidential Medal of Freedom. 
<laughs> Whoa, okay. Trump as the showman is always there. Uh, Brian, what is the continuing influence of, of um, Rush Limbaugh and conservative talk radio in general in the United States? Do you think they're still helping Trump a lot? I think that, you know, talk radio has less of an impact in presidential general elections just because if you were living in the States right now, you're just saturated with content. I, don't, I can't watch a Philadelphia Eagles game without seeing like 12 ads for every commercial break. Um, and so it's less impactful in those situations just because there's so much information. But it is continuing to get people excited. It's continuing to energize them. It's continuing to get them to donate and to be involved for Trump. Um, it's giving him a platform. He came back from having COVID last week, and he did like two or three major radio shows, including two hours with Rush Limbaugh, like yeah. you mentioned. Um, he did conservative cable news as well. And it gives him a chance to get his, his perspective out there unfettered um, with, with no media interference. And it continues to have a huge impact down ballot um, and, and influencing Republican primaries and who wins them and in scaring uh, Republican legislators into doing what the you know hosts and their listeners think is the right thing to do because they're afraid that if they don't, they might lose their next primary election. So it's still enormously influential. Okay, some conservative pundits, though, and conservative media, not all of them have stood by Trump, right? Like, I mean, like, notably someone like Ann Coulter, I know, kind of split with Trump. Or you look at some other major sort of conservative establishment media like the National Review or or the Weekly Standard, or or we see these videos on Twitter from the Lincoln Project, which we're told are Republicans that don't, don't like Trump. So hasn't some of the conservative media turned against him? Well, there, there was a pretty significant portion of conservative media that did not support him in 2016. Right. And many of them found that they had commercial problems, uh, that their listeners dropped off, they started getting threats, some of them lost jobs, they lost appearances, uh, that there was a real impact on them. And in, some, in a lot of cases, they've either come around, like Glenn Beck uh, has, to Trump. Either they say that they like his policies, and he's actually governed as a conservative, or they say, well, the left kind of pushed me into this. But it's very commercially convenient for these people to get on board, because that's where their audience is. Um, in the case of those who work for a company called Salem, that is where their bosses are, too. And, and Salem, it's not surprising that one longtime host left Salem after 20 years and got replaced by a former aide to Trump, Sebastian Gorka. Um, so the, there, there are some dissent, dissenters in conservative media, but less in the broadcast media than there has been in some of the print publications um, and some of the like Republican strategists and former Republican officials. And I think the main reason for that is these guys, the thing they care about most is protecting that relationship and that bond with their audience. And their audience is all in for Trump. You know, I, I, I did a, an interview with one host um, last year, and he said to me, you know, and he said this on the air, he said, you know, I wasn't a big Trump fan at the beginning. I was a Ted Cruz guy, but my audience brought me around. So they understand where their audience is, and they know that the audience is all in on Donald Trump. Okay, speaking of Dr. Brian Rosenwald, University of Pennsylvania, what about some of the other kind of uh, fringe, kind of off-the-rails conspiracy stuff, like, you know, QAnon or, or Alex Jones and, and Infowars? I mean, is that is that kind of stuff really super influential in your mind, or is it kind of 
is it kind of exaggerated to an extent? Your thoughts? Well, it's super influential in that there are a lot of growing adherence to it. You know, we see at least one uh, woman in Georgia is going to likely be elected to Congress while being a big QAnon person. Um, so it, wow. it certainly gained currency on the right. Um, and, and like Alex Jones was marginalized before Donald Trump, but then he went and did an interview with him. And so he has mainstreamed some of the most extreme kind of hosts and conspiracy theory folks. And, and of course, notably last night on NBC, he refused to condemn QAnon to say that, you know, this is all ridiculous um, and, and not true. But I, I think that the influence is somewhat limited in terms of talk radio. But it, it's important to note that talk radio has never been adverse to a good conspiracy theory um, and, and has always pushed things that are not factually true and, you know, create this climate in which QAnon could, could flourish. And there are definitely hosts who are advocating QAnon. Um, so it's part of it, you know, and whenever they get called out on this stuff, they say, well, we're entertainers or we're talk show hosts. We're not journalists. Right. Hey, Brian, it's fascinating stuff. I highly recommend the book. Thanks a lot for coming on today. It's my pleasure. Always happy to do it, Mike.